Welcome to the audio version of Coding in the Classroom, our column in the OME Gazette. Beza and I are seeking out teachers across the province of Ontario to talk to them and learn how they are using computational thinking for learning in their classrooms. Jeff Irvine's a longtime teacher, administrator, researcher, and general all around. Education officer as well. And that's right. Oh, true. Yes, you worked for the ministry. I remember. Yeah, that was a bad move, but we won't get into that either. No. (laughs) That's okay. And then we are, you know what, this is turning out to be a good introduction. So we'll just do this. We'll just keep rolling and we'll roll with it. Yeah. So you've had, you've had a really wide experience in math education over the years. And just, if you could just give our viewers just a little bit of an overview of what you've, what you've seen over the years, especially when it comes to technology and tools. The biggest thing I saw in technology was in the mid seventies when I was lucky enough to open a new school with a department head named Joe Stein, who used to be an aeronautical engineer. In fact, he worked on the Avro Arrow. And when the Arrow got canceled, he went into teaching, which was a big plus for teaching. I I don't know about him and his family, but Joe was very pragmatic about making the best use of whatever technology was available. And in the mid-70s, that was the scientific calculator. So when we opened the school, we required every student to have a scientific calculator. We got them subsidized or free if there was a financial issue. They were allowed to use the calculator at any time, including on tests and so on. Joe took a lot of flack for that, particularly from the parents who claimed, you know, kids want to learn the basics and it wasn't that way when I was in school. And his biggest argument was, it's there. And very much to me parallels the cell phone thing right now in the last few years. It's there. You can't ignore it. You can't expect them to power down when they get into the building and power up when they leave. That's just not realism. And the upside of that was it was incredibly freeing for the teachers because we do an investigation and not have to fudge the numbers so they were pretty, not have to fake interest rates so they fit the back of the book, not have oh. to look up sines and cosines and logarithms or whatever in tables in the back of the book, which was a process, of course, of these from the 1400s. And so we were able to do a lot more realistic kinds of things. And that was a big plus because part of Joe science philosophy was every class started with a problem yes now some of them were minimally problems but some of them were real problems he with his experience he had problems about mock numbers and all kinds of stuff that really hooked the kids and we then engaged in in what i ended up calling just-in-time teaching whereby let's say the class was working on a problem and they needed to know more about I don't know, intersection of lines or whatever. Yes. So we do a little mini lesson on intersection of lines, and then we get back to the problem. And if then if they needed something on, I don't know, cosine law or whatever the heck it was, we do a little mini lesson on that and get back to the problem. So there was never anybody who asked, when are we going to use this? Which was very different than my experience prior to that, where basically everybody asked, when are we going to use this or what good is this? 
So it, the technology allowed us immense freedom to motivate kids to actually learn. Yeah. And that is also our experience as well for Beza and I is that yeah, so you do things and you get to get messy yes, and, and messy, right. messy is more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, and it's so like you have to interpret. So I remember when these calculators came around, I was like in beginning of high school and some of the teachers are like, no, you can't use that, but yeah. you can have a, you can, if you really want, you can have a slide rule. So yeah. my father was an engineer taught me how yeah. to use a slide rule and I brought it in and I could go pretty fast on a slide rule. And I said, this is I no different slide rule in class. Yeah. And it's not, first years of teaching. yeah. And it's not any different than a calculator. It's just more, more manual, I guess. Yeah. And so. far less accuracy, but anyway. Okay. So the calculators were the first thing that came in What and you've, and this is like seventies, eighties. Yeah. And then if, there's, if you there's fast forward to the nineties, of course, then yes, the graphing but... calculators and the change, big changes in curriculum came in and okay. that was incredible absolutely incredible i was a department head by then and we had 540 graphing calculators in the math department wow we also had two sets of ti-92s which were like an early cast system yes and we had two sets of the ba2 plus business calculators because we weren't that far from sheridan college that's what they used in their classes yeah Could and you... so our business classes use those as well. Okay, so for our listeners, TI is Texas Instruments. Oh, yeah. What is BA? I don't know. I think it's business analyst, probably. Okay. A long time ago. <laughs> yeah. No longer in business. Sheridan was interesting because they had a math test that you couldn't use a calculator on to get into their program. But as soon as you got in, they told you what calculator to buy. Yeah, that's Which just... I found a little ironic. That's crazy. But during that time, too, I was writing for a textbook company, and we did a lot of workshops around the province. And I went to a lot of schools, not a lot, I went to some schools where they had certain class sets of graphing calculators that sat in cupboards. Yes. Because the teachers and the heads didn't believe that was a good thing to use. Yes. Now, okay, so here's where I'm going to push a little bit, because is it that they didn't think they were a good idea to use, or were they just a little bit too difficult for them to learn how to use effectively in a classroom? I think a combination of both. Okay. Uh, I, I found, I remember one particular workshop I was at, they had three sets of, they had 100 graphing calculators sitting locked in a cupboard, and I asked about them, and the head who I was talking to said, well, we tried it once, but it was just too much effort. Yes. I don't know if he meant that was too much effort for the students, the teachers, or who. But I talked to him about the kinds of investigations you could do with them and the ways you could change your teaching with transformations of functions and stuff that they were still doing by hand. And I have to admit, he was totally unconvinced. Okay. And... So just could you give a, an example of how like the graphing calculator moved us forward? What sort of things were you able to do with a graphing calculator that you weren't able to do before? Well, certainly there was a lot of data analysis, but there was also hmm. relatively simple things like transformations of functions where you can yes. use the function notation in the graphing calculator and see what happens if it's f of x plus three or f of x, f of x bracket, whatever. And 
instead of the kid spending 20 minutes redoing the calculations by hand and then graphing it, you could focus on the bigger ideas of how the transformation affects the graph. Yes. As opposed to how the transformation affects the numbers in the graph. That to me was a big one. That's a there huge difference. Simple things that a lot of the investigations, for example, I remember when the profiles came out, there was a thing, there was an activity called stormy weather, where it had a whole series of parabolic functions that had been transformed. So it looked like a storm cloud. Yes. And the kids' job or the students' job was to find an appropriate set of functions that mimic that display. Oh, that would be so much fun. Oh, it was a ton of fun. And it, interestingly enough, there's a whole bunch of possible responses to that. Yeah. yeah. And so as a teacher, I ended up asking not just for the functions, but for a screenshot of the settings on the calculator, because you can manipulate the settings to get the picture without actually manipulating the functions. Yes. So there were lots and lots of things like that. There were lots more data investigations that were possible with the experiments and so, forming hypotheses and yeah uh, so is so is that when we started to really do data better in schools to teach data better or was there the desire to do it before i think there was some desire to do it before the problem before is if, if you had a messy set of data hmm. you then had to have access to a computer to have it crunch the data and or the giant were, tables. Yeah, okay. The tables were, I got to admit, I stopped using tables in like 1975. So I started teaching in 1974. Yes. <laughs> 73. But there were lots of, I shouldn't say lots. There was some desire to do data. But the curriculum also had very limited data and statistics in them, in the curriculum. Very limited. Yes. Typically, the grade nine curriculum had mean, median, and mode. And then you never saw it again, anything with statistics until, if you were lucky, maybe grade 13, yes. when they had a, uh -huh. an optional statistics course in grade 13. Yeah. But other than that, data was not part of a mathematics student's experience at all. And it's such a fun topic. That's right. And it's one that we can like use to do really fun investigations and find Absolutely. out you know, are these things this is what they this is what they're proposing let's get the data yeah. is what they're proposing correct and we're really back yeah. to focusing on the idea as opposed to the number crunch and yeah. that's how all, all the calculators free math students from those kinds of activities i was really lucky at mount allison i had a stats prof who saw that statistical calculators had just come into the book store so he said okay yes. everybody i'll go out get one. Sorry, it's a hundred dollars, but we're not going to use a textbook. So that's your textbook. I'm going to show you how to do it from first principles so that you understand, but then we're going to go and do analysis. And this was in a floor level statistics course. So we started off with analysis. It changed mathematics for me and changed statistics yeah. for me and for the rest of my fellow students as well. And so that's what the technology was there to do. May I ask a question here? Yeah, yes, just, please. Oh, thank you so much for this enlightening examples about you. And it's really exciting for me because it's something I just maybe read on the books or something. It's really far away how I learn mathematics. It's more technology-based. And 
it sounds for me really the very same way of how we're trying to, I can say maybe just personalize it, the way of I'm seeing coding in mathematics classroom, how it used before the technological, all technological tools used in mathematics classroom to just integrate this real life data and do more analysis, more manipulating and just giving more options and motivation and anything else. But in that case, if I just wondering, firstly, you're thinking the coding is very same like how we use other technological tools in mathematics classrooms first. And the second question is, if so, why we are having so much trouble to teaching coding or using coding to teach or learn mathematics? Because we are really discussing about this a lot with the teachers because sometimes coding so overshading mathematics in the classroom and we can apply it for a different, but now we are talking more math classroom. So these two questions in my mind to just discuss with you. Okay, let me deal with the first question first. No, I don't think that most teachers, I certainly don't see coding as another technological tool. And I think way, I go way back to when I first took computer science at University of Waterloo, we spent hours doing punch cards to write a program that would find the average of three numbers. And that clearly is not a useful activity. And I think, no. I'm not saying other teachers are from my generation, but I don't think, I think many teachers see coding as that. It's an add-on thing related to mathematics, but not particularly useful for anything that we couldn't do otherwise more efficiently. So that, in a way, that kind of answers the second question. The second question, I think, is more complex because it goes back to the curriculum. Coding is yet another add-on without much being subtracted, if anything, from the curriculum. They added coding. They added modeling. They added social-emotional learning. Many of besides modeling, the other two, probably most math teachers, and certainly most elementary math teachers, have zero experience with, like none. And so I get the feeling that coding is kind of lumped in with, here's another thing that I don't know anything about that I'm supposed to teach, but I'm busy trying to teach the basic curriculum and it's an extra. A very good friend of mine, this is not elementary, the D-Stream grade nine, very good friend of mine, who's a fantastic math teacher. I asked her about teaching the D-Stream nine and she said she got through most of it, but she didn't even touch coding. And Part of that is time, obviously, but also her attitude seemed to be, so what? So I didn't touch coding, hey, that's life, they'll survive without it. It reminds me of when we got the original expectations in the mid 90s and late 90s, and we classify them into three layers. There was what they called at that time enduring understandings, which would be like big ideas, it was important to know and be able to do, which was kind of like the next layer out, and then there was, nice if you've seen it, also yes. known as, if you're out of time, that stuff gets ignored. Yeah. And so for, for it's falling yeah. in that outer shell right now. Yeah. Yeah. And so for people that, that EID is from Wiggins and Mitkatai, if they want to go and look it up and it's, that's how I was brought up as a teacher and it, and that worth being familiar with is the problem of new things. So new yes. curriculum, new subjects, new tools to use that 
worth being familiar with is as a, as Jeff just said, is it's the, if you have time for. That's right. So how like you, so you've seen these amazing tools that are used and not used throughout the years. So you've got a really broad perspective on the use of different tools to broaden what we do in the math class. So you've seen calculators, you've seen graphing calculators. I know you're, you really love Desmos as well, which is Desmos is incredible what you can do with it or the mathematics you can get your students to do with it, but they don't get used. There's still for, there's still anti-calculator people. There's, there's, there are definitely anti-web-based math tools people. So how do we get to those people and how do we convince them that these tools really do allow you to do things that you're not able to do and you'll have fun with them? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. It's the same question that's occurred, as you said, Ian, from the scientific calculator, the graphing calculator, through programs like Desmos. Not sure I have a great answer for that. When I did my PhD research, that was in 2017, I did it in classrooms where all the classrooms had computers at the back. None of the math teachers had ever heard of Desmos, and let alone used it. And in some of the classes, when students came into the room, they were required to put their cell phones in little pouches at the front of the room because the teacher didn't want them to actually use it for anything. I understand the distraction aspect. There's a lot of that. But like any technology, you can misuse it, of course. Yeah. I think of the graphing calculators where, as, as I mentioned, we had like hundreds of them. And at the end of the class, you had to check to make sure the kids hadn't spelled any rude words with the numbers and stuff on the calculators. <laughs> oh, God. You know? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I may so have done that. That's a years. very limited kind of misuse. But yes, I think... For the most part, once teachers understand the power of the technology, many of them, not all, but many of them are willing to give it a shot. When I looked around, I worked in a very large school of about 2,200 kids, and my math department was fantastic in that sense that they were willing, even though there was a broad range of experience in the department, they were very willing to try new stuff, mostly. (laughs) And the thing that was nice is once they saw the power of the technology. They became more willing to get involved. We used to have a professional development chunk to our math meeting, math department meetings, where we'd take turns sharing a lesson that went well. Mm-hmm. Typically it would be with technology, but not always. There'd be people that said, wow, when I did this in my class, it took us two periods or whatever, because it took so long to do the calculations or the whatever. Yeah. Whereas this is much more elegant and more efficient. The kids understand it better. They waste less time. There's more time on tasks. They're more engaged. There's so many pluses. Yeah. But and I'm I, not really sure how you share that. That's that that was that's my next question. Were they able to and or encouraged to share those lessons with each other and use? Oh, them? absolutely. And, and well, within a department, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. When I was chair of Peel Mathes, along with Fred Fernio, we did a lot of sharing at those meetings of here's something that worked really well. Fred was a big TI guy. And so a lot of the lessons were TI based, but not always. Some of them were just simply, here's an investigation that we did that really worked well. And 
feel free to use it. There was no yeah. sort of territorial issues with it. Mm -hmm. Whereas many some departments I worked in, there was a real aversion to sharing anything. That's a culture of the department or the school. But I had people who wouldn't even share a worksheet. Wow. I, under the argument, we're hard to do this. I've used it for 20 years or whatever. <laughs> Not always the same story. Or longer. Or longer, yeah. And yet still, when I did the, the PhD research, there were teachers in that math department, two of whom had been my students, ironically enough, who were dead set against using any technology in the classroom. Now, I'm trying to figure out how a student of mine who used technology basically every day as a teacher would be dead set against using it. So I don't know how to accommodate that. I don't know how to overcome those mindsets. I think maybe if you have the best interests of the students in mind, that almost takes care of itself. Yes. Which I guess is saying a bad thing about the two people I taught. But if you recognize your job is to support students in their learning, then you're going to use whatever appear to be the most effective and efficient tools that to do that. Yes. My wife is a retired elementary principal, and she had this saying that says, the building is there for the kids. And if you transpose that a little bit, the technology is there for the kids. The curriculum is there for the kids. All of it is there for the kids. The big deal is to keep that uppermost in mind. Yeah. When we start looking at technology and tools as things that allow us to do better mathematics or just allow us to really do mathematics because yep. most school mathematics isn't. That's what Bill Higginson calls SMATH, school math. Yeah. Yeah. It almost becomes like an imperative that we start doing these things for our students. But how do you get over the hurdle of people seeing or seeing teachers seeing coding as just another add-on? That's it. It's, it's it's another add-on. It's another fad. This will do. This is this is why we're doing this series of talks this year. With um, your head down, and this too shall pass. There is that. I do have a story of of when the two thousand math curriculum came out. A principal who said, "Ah, oh, this is just going to pass. Don't worry. Don't just ignore it." I know of a high school in a region I won't mention who in the mid-90s, when the D-Stream grade 9 came out the first time, they never did it. They just totally ignored it for the five years or so that it was in there and said exactly what you said, this too shall pass. It's a fad. As it turns out, it was, but that doesn't make them prescient or anything. It just means they see too many fads, too many flavor of the week kinds of changes. Yes. So have this ignorance turn back at the end. Yeah. Excellent question. Well, teaching is officially a professional bureaucracy, which means the curriculum is imposed from above, but what actually happens comes from below. And so to focus on the come from below part, teachers, I believe, need to be convinced of the usefulness of whatever it is. Absolutely. Whether it's the new curriculum or the technology or the new assessment policies or whatever the heck it is. Teachers need to be convinced that's the best for their students. Absolutely. It's like the value proposition. Yeah. What, yeah, what is this going to, so. yeah. And it's not just for the students. It's for me as the teacher too. What's the value proposition for and me or for my students? Yeah. Including bad backlash student instructor, professional development, curriculum policy, because it seems that there is also, we are doing some mistake in the 
way of introducing it so they're not getting mm-hmm. enough information excitement and whatever mm-hmm. about using technology so yeah, yeah there's I'm... not just one side it there are a lot of side of it personally i think introducing coding at the elementary level was a big mistake already the people who teach math at the elementary level are either shaky or scared of mathematics they have incredibly limited backgrounds in general and so to say to them hey here's this nifty new thing and they're just thinking hey there's one more thing i don't understand and as you said beza then they may be introducing it with their best efforts maybe introducing it with limited information misinformation and still through that all will come the whole math is hard kind of thing that many elementary teachers faced both as students and as now as teachers i'm, I'm wondering oh sorry no it's okay i wonder uh, they won't the ministry never goes back on what they do though so if they had maybe started i don't know in middle school or even the intermediate senior curriculum like 7 8 to 12 that might have been a better move we're back to in grade 2 what kinds of real problems can a kid solve with coding in grade 2 Maybe there are some. I don't know any. Maybe there are some. I don't know. There are. (laughs) Okay, but the vast majority of teachers in grade two will have zero clue about that. And also, probably very limited to no interest in finding out. And it is overwhelming. Yeah. Yes, Yes, exactly. They already find curriculum changes overwhelming. Now to put in some brand new stuff that they know absolutely nothing about makes it even more overwhelming. Yes. Absolutely. I'd like to get just a little bit in here on what you think a tool is. So what is a tool for mathematical learning? What is it? What features or aspects would it have if you had to say, okay, so this is now a tool? Absolutely. Yeah. Or this is not a tool. We like it's. I'm trying to get you to define one of those things that we say, yeah, we know it when we see it, but. Okay. Let me take a shot. Okay. To me, a tool in mathematics is something that makes the mathematics more explicit or more transparent, maybe is a better word. Yes. So rather than, if we take calculation kinds of issues, rather than getting buried in the, how do you multiply five-digit numbers, you can look at, okay, these five-digit numbers represent changes in, in CO2 emissions or whatever. And why does that matter to us? So it allows us to tackle real-world problems to some extent without getting bogged down in the details. And I don't, I don't mean details as in what does climate change do, obviously. It's uh, not no. really detailed, but details in the sense of don't let the mathematics get in the way of learning important mathematics. Yeah, yeah I was going to say arithmetic, but it's y- not just Yes, so, so, so I would say that arithmetic in and of itself is a tool as opposed to being a mathematical Yeah, okay, yeah, thing. that's good. Yeah. But it's not an efficient tool if you're no. doing it all by hand, except in very limited kinds of... Or small know, things. Six times yeah. seven sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, I think back to, I did an applied math degree at the University of Waterloo, and there, was, there were things like simple harmonic motion, like pendulums and stuff. And I found in applied math, they had to simplify to the extent that you lost the problem. Yeah. So you ignore the fact that the pendulum slows down due to friction. You ignore air as a frictional problem. You ignore 
gravity. You ignore all kinds of stuff because we didn't have the tools to efficiently handle that. And so you simplified the problem to where it wasn't a problem anymore. It was just this thing going back and forth. And what do you need to analyze about that? Theoretically, it goes on forever, a simple harmonic motion in perpetua. It never slows down. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered, really. And so I, I think a mathematical tool allows you to address a real-world problem in a useful way, as in not simplified beyond any connection to the original problem. I, I think of one of the people in my department built an amazing exercise back in the 80s when the Challenger disaster happened. Yes. About things and temperature and when they tended to split and crack and all kinds of things like that. And the technology was relatively simple that we used to address that. At that stage, it would have been a scientific calculator. But that was a real problem with real data. They could really say, geez, they ought to have known better. I hate to say it like that, but <laughs> like O-rings cracking at low temperatures wasn't a big surprise. No. And yet they set this thing up and it exploded. And there, was, there were other things I've saw. I've saw, excuse me, things like analyzing population growth. Mm -hmm. The numbers are huge, right? right? There are important things happening there that you can analyze with mathematics in a real way, but not if you're spending 20 minutes doing the calculations. Yes. And so any kind of tool that simplifies that, whether it was way back like tables of logarithms, for God's sake, or calculators or Desmos or computer yeah. programs or whatever it is, yeah. and maybe coding, although I don't know enough about coding to tell you, that allow you to look at this problem and not lose the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in there, I'm going to put a plug for like real mathematics, just mathematical phenomena as being real world too. So yes. I, any of my students right now will tell and will know that I'm absolutely fixated on the Colatz conjecture or the 3x plus one problem. And, and that's something that you can do in your head. Like you can divide by two, you can multiply by three and add one. But oh boy, when you like put it onto a computer or you use a spreadsheet to help you, yeah. it's wow. The like the questions that you're able to ask are so much bigger than what's the next one in the series. Yes. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think way back to the early 70s when I taught computer science, we did lots of problems with infinite series. Oh, yeah. E to the X or sine X or cos X or <laughs> kinds of stuff like that where you couldn't really do a sensible job on it without some kind of technological aid because it, it just got too messy too fast. Whereas with the computers, even though when I started teaching computers, it was on the wang and you had to have them bubble in cards, send the cards to the board office where they oh my gosh! Them, and then they came back with some kind of output. Hopefully that didn't say you made an error bubbling in the wrong thing. But by doing those kinds of, addressing those kinds of mathematical questions, students, okay, technology is just a tool. Yes. The goal is not to learn how to do, for, do Fortran, which I also taught, but to actually solve a problem to some point, to some degree of accuracy, for example. So I've wandered away from the question about what's a mathematical tool. No, I think you've pretty much said wonderful things about it. it's something that allows us to get at the real stuff 
so that we don't get bogged down in the calculations. But also what you said, the real stuff doesn't have to be real world. It's nice if it is, but it could also be a mathematical conjecture. Oh, absolutely. Or it could be something simple like perfect numbers. Yeah. What's the tenth perfect number? I don't know. I know what the first two are. No, first three, I know. I know the first one. Yeah, six. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Six, twenty-eight, four thousand and ninety-six. And that's how far I go. Yeah. Four thousand and six. Okay. Because it's it's easy to program that kind of algorithm. Absolutely. But not not easy to find the next one, which is probably, you know. 32 digits long or something yeah it's like the it's like the people who calculate pi to millions and millions of digits and saying that's awesome that you can do that do you know how many you really need yeah 10 first two or three will do yeah oh the first two are good for just about everything the first 10 decimal places allow you allows you to calculate circumference of the universe to within a meter yeah or 10 or 12 i can't remember but it's not many of them there's a story about Back in, I think, maybe the 1500s, I can't remember the mathematician's name. He spent something like 37 years computing the digits of pi. Yes, I was thinking of this problem. Yeah, yeah, and then at some point, I don't know how far in, he made a mistake. So everything after that was wrong. And clearly that's not a valuable use. I don't think that's a valuable use of 37 years of somebody's time. I guess the person enjoyed it, I hope. But I can't see getting up saying, I spent 35 years and six months, and today will be day 5,000 in my quest. But at the same time, hey, the guy got off on that, so that's nice for him. I always think there are a lot of mathematical situations, like Fermi's last theorem, where people spent literally years of their lives on it. Technology allowed us to come up with a solution, yes, which is neat, but probably irrelevant to 99% of the population of the world. Whereas something on population or climate change or whatever, weather, is relevant to at least 99% of the population of the world. And I actually can't even think of 1%. It's it's relevant to everybody. Yeah. (laughs) And I can say that nowadays, because the young generations have living or somehow connected in a virtual way, in some way to fantastic worlds, and nowadays, yeah. they're not trying to solve this real life. They're also trying to solve fantastic world issues. And they're yes. creating games on it. They're just using a lot of math and technology, yeah. things coding mostly in these fantastic worlds. And we just recently last week talked about this. And they talk how they are using mathematics to create video games in their own. And it's all fantastic life issues. So yeah. their life is really broader than before. So they have a lot of problems to solve, really. And they really yeah. need med and technology, I think, so much. Even if I shrink it back down, uh, I used to use an activity called how much coffee. And basically the idea was, how much coffee is there in Tim Horton's coffee cup? It didn't need Tim Hortons. You could use whoever. But it's a non-standard volume, right? It's I didn't really care about the answer, but I cared more about, about my students would get into groups and build a plan about how to compute the volume in the coffee cup. <laughs> and they were amazingly good at making plans. Some of the plans were maybe shaky, but 
they were at least thinking about the problem. It reminds me of a little bit of Peter Lillydale's work on building thinking classrooms in mathematics. Isn't that supposedly that's why we teach mathematics, right? We're supposed to be teaching people to think, that's, hopefully. Yes. And yet, when I look at what I suffered through in well, all my mathematics classes as a student, thinking wasn't really a priority. It was learn this procedure, or basically it was learn this procedure. Memorizing. And then regurgitate it out back on the test. And I think technology has allowed us to get, to move somewhat away from that. We st Obviously, we're still teaching some algorithms and some procedures and so on. Well, we but at the yeah. same time, hopefully, we're also teaching where can you use this procedure and when is this not an appropriate procedure to use? That's that's also a really good point. Yeah. What is the best use of this? Yeah, yeah. Or and that's something we deal with at my faculty at Ontario Tech is the what is the appropriate use? Yes. And you can also put that in another way. So I have this problem. What's the appropriate technology that would allow me to do to really dig into this problem? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where I think we are now that we have all these technological tools that we can use, we're now to the point of saying, okay, so we have all these tools, which one is good for this particular problem or yeah. which ones, because there's not necessarily just the one. So, yeah. There's a, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the guy's name, the SAMR, SAMR taxonomy. I don't know if you run into that. It's a four level taxonomy, but using technology. Okay. And the first level is like substitution. Okay, instead of pencil and paper, we're going to use a calculator. And then, I'm sorry, I forgot the other level. But basically, the top level is that technology allows you to do stuff you couldn't do before. That's the level. Substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition. Yes. And then redefinition is exactly what it says. It's instead of doing the logarithmic scales, you do a study of earthquakes. So you shifted the focus from the logarithmic scale, which is still part of what you're doing, but it's now, okay, we're studying earthquakes now. We're redefining the problem. Yes. So in, in that case, here's just a straight thought, is we're now, like that redefinition is we're taking some of the mathematical objects and things we're doing, like logarithms, and yep. we're putting them in the place of a tool. So logarithms yeah, become a yes. tool to allow no, us to study. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Kind of like arithmetic starts out as a topic all the time, but okay. eventually it becomes a tool. Yeah, I've always wondered why we're teaching addition past grade one. Yeah. yeah we have to. That's all. We just need the concept. Yeah. And like the yeah. and once you've got the basics, you should be able to do more and more complex ones or complicated. Yeah. They're should not be able to understand the more and more complicated ones yes and have the technology do it for you yes i'm far enough back that i used to teach formal method for finding a square root without yeah. a calculator yep. and there's this algorithm and it works fine yes. it takes forever yep so, so you get end up with two or three digit accuracy on the square root and which is awesome 20 time. yeah which is nice yeah. but totally irrelevant <laughs> and a sad addendum to that, back when I was writing for textbooks, you had to write the textbook to conform to the curriculum. Yeah. 
I read there. some chapters and the publisher came back and said, we have a problem. Solon's minister of whatever wants us to include formal method for finding a square root. And this was like early 80s. Yeah. And I'm saying, why on earth would we ever do that? It's his favorite topic in math. He could really do that algorithm well. And literally, it became part of the curriculum because one guy with some power said, I really like this. Put this in. Yes, that's why there's there was double-digit division in grade six even That's even right. though yeah, exactly. the, even all the developers we'd said well, if you can divide by a single digit it's easy yeah, to divide by a double idea. digit it's just it's just more complicated it's not even that much more fun i think of even, it got in there because the minister wanted it yeah like when i was at the ministry of ed as an education officer every single thing we proposed was research-based every single thing we proposed and yet, by the time it came back around to us, after all the various levels of approval and so on, sometimes you wouldn't even recognize the proposal. Not always, yes. yeah. but sometimes. And the same kind of thing happens with curriculum. I'm actually working on a, a well, semi-working on a paper about the what I call the curriculum telephone game. <laughs> sorry. So many levels. Okay. okay, sorry. Beza, do you know what the telephone game is? Okay, so oh, the telephone game is is somebody, like, the teacher tells me something, whispers it in my ear, and then I whisper it into Jeff's ear, and then Jeff takes what he thinks I said and whispers it into your ear, and then you take the next person, and then Too by the end... interpretation going on there. Yeah, and not hearing things correctly, and by the end it gets done. The same thing... There's so much noise between the levels. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I see. And in curriculum, there's eight levels. There's intended curriculum. Curriculum, there's written curriculum, there's interpreted curriculum, there's it goes on and on. Eventually, you get to an active curriculum, which is what the oh, teacher that. actually does. And then you've got assessed curriculum, which may or may not match. And then you've got learned curriculum, which again may or may not match any of these things. Yes. And <laughs> even if there's like a 10% noise level at each level through that curriculum, you end up with less than 50% of the intended curriculum ever getting to the learn stage. Yes. So that that's one of the many things I'm frustrated with in education. Yeah. That's, and this is just the theory level. Then it's that, right. practice, it's also changing in different ways. Absolutely. And I think that's happening with coding maybe to some extent too. I don't know who the intent the original authors of the coding slice of the curriculum were. I would be willing to bet that even the written curriculum that came out is not a 100% match for what you guys intended. The interpreted curriculum, which will come through the boards and may or may not go through uh, a coordinator or somebody who may or may not know anything about coding, will once again change it. Then it gets to the teacher level, and they once again interpret whatever the heck they got based on their lenses, which may or may not include coding, and in most cases won't. So there's a lot of frustrating levels to go through. And so getting back to Basil's comment about what the heck do you do about this? How do you get it actually going? I think you need teachers on the ground who are actually doing it to spread the word. Yeah. Probably officially through some kind of PD activity. Yes. But one of the problems with the PD activities is often they use the train the trainer model. So Basil's an expert. She goes and does a presentation for 
board coordinators or somebody, right? They then are supposedly going to go back and tell their resource teachers about all this good stuff. Who are then going to go out and tell their teachers about all this good stuff. Who are then actually going to do something. But we're back to the telephone game again. As far as I know, these the trainers who get trained have minimal to no training in training anybody. And they use that model since the 70s. It hasn't worked since the 70s. It's Maybe never... it's time to try a new model. None of it's worked. Yeah. So um, the Swedish have a, a have an adage that it takes 20 years to enact any kind of change in education. Yeah. I'm surprised it's only 20 years. No, but we, you mentioned it, Ian. We still got people who ref basically refuse to use technology in any form, maybe for the best of intentions, or maybe just because they're lazy, or maybe a combination of all of those, lacking knowledge, whatever. A lack of understanding, actually. But one yeah. of the things we did at the ministry was job embedded coaching. That worked really well, but it was also very pricey. The first year we did that, which would have been 2009, maybe, it cost over $7 million to run this program. And that's much more hands-on grassroots kind of thing, but it's really costly. And it worked. I mean, you need but... release time. You need people who know what they're doing. You need all and, kinds of stuff. Yes, and it uh, works. And it works, yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of research that says probably better coaching works. But it's Sorry. incredibly yeah. pricey, and they don't even do that anymore. Except is not changing, I think. The no, it's not. We... Are, yeah. The main issues in math problem, and I can say that you're talking in Canada context, and I can say that it's pretty much same with my back home. Yeah. So we are all discussing yeah. the same context because it's mathematic yeah. issue. Yeah. If it is mathematic, and if it's ed education issue. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm getting a lot from okay. you. History yeah. things as well. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I remember interviewing a guy from MathDrop, and he asked a question about how many graphing calculators do we have in the school? And that was a school where we had 600 of them, right? Yeah. So I called him and talked about some of the things. He says, Oh, I don't believe in any of that stuff. He says, They all have to use pencil and paper in my class all the time. Oh. Guess whether he got the job. <laughs> so thanks very much for talking with us today, Jeff. It's been wonderful going back and seeing how things have been and how they are still somewhat the same and maybe some hope for the future. So thanks very much for spending time with us. Oh, you're welcome. Coding in the Classroom is written and produced by Beza Caesar and Ian Brody for the OAME Gazette. The editor for the Gazette is Tim Sibald. Thank you for, to Upbeat and Soundroll for the theme music. <laughs>